this week on Dig Me Out. your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode, thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And that's just what some new patrons have done uh, in the last month. We've had some, well, we've had some new folks and some folks rejoining us. Uh, welcome, Jeff Gentis. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. We need to add a pronunciation guide so that when people, they have to spell it phonetically when they sign the up. Notes. Yes. And then uh, welcome back, Jim Lazowski. He took a couple months off, but he's back with us. And uh, look forward to your comments on our episodes and polls and, and various other uh, posts over at Patreon. Jay, this is an album review based on one of our polls. This is our November poll. We're in the last month of 2020, finally. The year of 55 months, it seemed like, or the longest March in existence. And uh, we're down to the last uh, poll episode. And it was a doozy. We had a lot of votes and a lot of good choices, a lot of discussion around these choices as well and i know jay you were excited I, I i have to believe that you were excited when you saw what the options were on this episode because anytime we get a, an 80s metal band that puts out a 90s record like the motley crew self-titled like skid rose subhuman race and we get to get into that end of the spectrum that's always a an interesting well, area. clearly, I'm not the only one that got excited about that. Clearly, you're not because, well, let's get into this poll. This poll uh, was dominated by two bands. Um, I'm going to start with the bottom. Uh, the The lowest vote getters were James Lehman, eleven sixteen sixty four, who was uh, suggested by Nino, uh, not Nuno, and uh, Snout. Circle high and wide, which was suggested by Phil with uh, three L's. Phil. <laughs> Along with Rain Sanctions Mariposa, which was suggested by Ro Roy Nurland. Uh, with three votes was Jade Fair and Jason Willett's Enjoyable Songs. That was suggested by Gary Moran, one of our patrons. Uh, with four votes, Orange. Oranger, Doorway to Norway, Chris Borger with that one. Five votes, Alligator Guns, 100% Freak. Matthew Tollock suggested that one. Seven Dust's self-titled album came in with seven votes. That was suggested by Darren Lehman. And then our second place vote getter, I mentioned that the top two kind of th ran away with this. Throwing Muses University, which was uh, suggested by Ada Rivers. And then the top winner, the top vote getter, the winner, 
that fits into this category nicely that I just mentioned. Extremes waiting for the punchline suggested by Richard Waterman, one of our patrons. Excellent use of the album poll system, Richard. <laughs> and uh, it was 13 to 11, the top uh, the top votes there. So just just squeaked ahead. I don't I don't remember the uh, how this poll went, if it was in the lead the whole time or if it snuck it out at the end or wh- what it was. But uh, like I mentioned, this is in the in the category of 80s metal bands, whether you want to call them hair metal or glam metal or just rock bands or whatever, that uh, changed their tune a little bit once uh, the alternative explosion happened in the early 90s. All those bands made, you know, adjustments. Let's put it that way. We've covered a couple of them with Skid Row and, and Motley Crue. We haven't gotten oh. to say Warrant or, you know, Poison or. We, w- we will eventually. We will. Bon Jovi. I, I, I do find it funny, though, that like for some reason. Those bands in this decade, we caveat it <laughs> like every band that's ever existed other than ACDC has changed their sound from decade to decade. I mean. Mm-hmm. Think about the Who and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, but for some reason, like those bands, for some reason, like are pointed out, like, oh, you changed it up. What's going on? Well, and I think part of that is because the the world around them so radically changed over a, a couple of years in terms of what radio wanted to play and in terms of what MTV was covering and what music magazines were covering, and it just seemed like. It was you could witness it in real time. You know, the, the Beatles evolved their sound, but it wasn't because record companies <laughs> decided that they were going in a completely different direction. I mean, the Beatles changed their sound based on their own artistic Im- impulses. And that's not to say that maybe, you know, Extreme would have made this album regardless. But we can talk about that as we talk about this record. We will. We will. Uh, this record came out. In February of 1995 on AM Records, it is, uh, it fe- features the um, drumming of both original drummer Paul Geary and Mike, not Eric Mangini, uh, on three tracks. <laughs> yes, don't confuse those two. Right. Uh, Eric it's, Mangini. It's funny, uh, at the time I, I were, I thought they only credited mangini for drumming but i saw going back and looking at the wikipedia that they gave the original drummer some credit too so i'm not sure what what's true there i wanted to ask you um i know so mike mangini played with other bands correct well he's most famous for being in uh dream theater now and i just pulled out the liner notes yes because i own the cd and he is the only credited drummer Wow, that's interesting. And the liner notes. But it says Paul Geary on Wikipedia and that Mike Mangini only played on three songs. So how do you get away with that? Hold on, let me read. This is the first time on the show we're actually reading liner notes. Co-produced by Bob St. John. Drums played by Paul Geary. Drums by Mike Mangini. Engineered by Bob St. John. So there's a little asterisk on the record. And I'm too old and I can't see, but maybe that's how Wikipedia. (laughs) 
Are, are those glasses just for fashion? They are not. And they need to be updated. Huh. So in the in the liner notes, there's some kind of delineation. So that must be where Wikipedia got the uh the info from. Gotcha. Um, this would be the last record before Mr. Nuno Betancourt decided to go solo. And then also Gary Sharon got involved with another band after this as well. Um, yeah. This this was their fourth album. And they did make another record in 2008 called Suarez de Rock. I, I, know, I have not listened to that. It was on Frontiers in Europe, <laughs> which is also home to every 80s metal band. I have listened to it. I would say it's, of all the records, it's the one it's closest to is probably the one we're about to review. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and of course, it would, this is a well-known band for, well... That's actually, I don't know if they are well known. I think they're they're known for a single, which of course is more than words. Um, but I don't know that everybody who hears that song knows anything about Extreme. They might just think that they were like a couple of dudes who played acoustic sure. guitar. Yep. Uh, they were a Boston, Massachusetts band that formed in 1985. They were together until 1996, broke up, then got together again in 2007. Um, First album, their self-titled came out in 1989 on AM. Porno Graffiti came out in 1990, followed up by Three Sides to Every Story in 1992. If you know the song um, More Than Words or Wholehearted was another single. Those were on the album Extreme 2 Pornography. I like that they named it Extreme 2 Pornography. Like it was a, like it was a sequel to a movie. Um, and then the first album, I don't think there was a huge single in the way that More Than Words was. I know Kid Ego charted it like in the top 40. Yeah, it was an MTV song. And these guys were a little late. I mean, that album came out in 89. So they were like for that scene right at the tail end of it with their first record. Gotcha. And it looks like, so Pat Badger was not the original bass player. Is that right? It was Paul man, Joan. He was the original oh. bass player. And then he was, and then Pat Badger was the bass player when they started recording. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't have known anything about them until the first record. Got it. Um, Nuno Betancourt started out playing keyboards. He was not the original guitar player. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, they had two guitar players. Peter Hunt was the lead guitar player, and Hal LeBeau was the rhythm guitar player. And then both Peter and Hal left the band, and Nuno moved to guitar and keyboards. And then just before, I guess, you know, signing a deal or whatever is when Man- Mangon or Manjone left the band and Pat Badger stepped in. And uh, that was Sharon, Geary, Betancourt, and Badger were the lineup that people, you know, associate with the band. And then Mangini came in for this record, which we're talking about. And then um, it does not look like 
it looks like they did some stuff uh, in the 2000s with Carl Restivo on bass. Carl Restivo, of course, of um, I don't know what bands. No idea. Oh, he was in <laughs> he was in Perry Farrell's band, uh, Satellite Party. And he was in Tom Morello's band when he did the not the Watchmen tours, um, or Night Watchmen. So, Jay, so, uh, so were you a big Extreme fan, or were these was this like a band that you were like casually interested in? This is the only Extreme album I own. Um, really? Huh, okay. Yeah, I thought they were interesting. Um, I didn't love the first record. Um, I liked Porn and Graffiti a little more, but it didn't, not enough to buy it. Um, and by the time uh, Wholehearted and More Than Words were hits, I was kind of burned out on them. So three sides mm-hmm. of the, every story I'd heard, it's a lot more, um, what do you want to call it, expansive? Yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of like a Queen record. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't super into that at the time. So this was probably the first record that I really, I mean, I knew the band and I would like see songs here and there. I would dub cassettes from friends and, you know, have them in mixes, mixtapes and stuff. But, you know, wasn't a huge fan, um, until I heard this record and, and went out and actually put my hard earned money down and bought it. Got it. We got some comments over at Patreon. I'm going to cover the ones that uh, are involving Extreme first. Scott Witt said, I choose Extreme. Had been considering it for my choice. Ooh. Absolutely love this album. Some may dismiss the more mature lyrics. <laughs> I dismiss these lyrics that are not immature. <laughs> but they had been doing that on uh, three. I um, think it fits perfectly with Crew 94 and Skid Row's Subhuman Race. Um. Uh, Scott Holgerman said, I voted against Extreme, Seven <laughs> Dust, and Throwing Muses. Um, Gavin said, I've selected Extreme just to hear you talk about hair metal more. I would have preferred Three Side to every story, but I'll give this a spin. Phil Fleming said, I voted for Extreme. This was an extremely, this was an interesting experiment. The almost complete antithesis, antithesis, that's a hard word to say, of three sides to every story. It's the most 90s alt-rock they could possibly be while still employing Nuno's guitar heroics. And then he gives some pros and cons, which um, I don't want to get too much into those because they might be some of our pros and cons. Aaron said, I never listened to this Extreme album, but was always curious about it. Just not curious enough to ever give it a spin. Keen to hear your take on it. And then Whitley Beeler just said, Extreme. <laughs> uh some to of the, the other point. folks uh yeah exactly to the point uh carl f went with seven dust gary moran jade fair darren leach went with snout chris martz went with seven dust because they're from atlanta and he was keeping it keeping a local uh oh kyle bittner said i voted for extreme i remember listening to them back in high school and thought it was an it was interesting to hear a hair metal band gone alt rock haven't thought about them since then, but excited to revisit this. Johnny Hooper said, Throwing Muses, Justin Wexler, Wexler, Alligator Gun, and uh, John Seaman, Seven Dust, Steve Musinski, 
went throwing muses. So we had a, that was a good outlay, but ex actually extreme got most of the comments on this particular, uh, poll. So goes there against go. uh, previous, uh, previous polls. And a little bit of trivia that from the history of the band too, is that Paul Geary at this album left the band to become a manager and went on to manage Smashing Pumpkins, Alter Bridge, Creed, Godsmack, The Scorpions, Joe Perry, Hoobastank, uh, he, he and Nuno. He with Hoobastank. Yeah. Jason Bonham, Steel Panther, Fuel. Oh. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, Nuno went on to become Rihanna's guitar player. That's oh, really? Albums, extreme albums. Yep. So I wonder he's if she's ever covered uh, more than words. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. She can sing. A little bit. Uh, all right. So now I think you're uh, you're going to have to to weigh in first on this record. Okay. Usually I don't like to because I do all the talking or mo a lot of the talking before. I know, I, but I like I'm just way too attached. Okay. I have way too much background with this record. I want to hear what you think first. You want to hear one thing that I liked about this record? Uh, I, I love the sound of this record and especially Nuno Betancourt's guitar playing. Betancourt. Uh, I, the riffs are just crazy good uh, all over the record. I think the drums sound huge. It's got a nice room sound. And there were parts that reminded me of the production of like classic Zeppelin in some ways that was just like this big booming kick drum that sounded really good. And I mean, it's such a, a cool guitar rock record in the sense that you can tell I had read a little bit up where people were saying like, he really changed his style up for this record. I'm talking about Betancourt where he was melding sort of his, you know, what, what he was known for being a, you know, virtuoso guitar player prior to this, but then really taking in some influences from 90s guitar players like Kim Fayol and, um, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote grunge bands. And you can really hear it. There are some, there's some really heavy riffage that wouldn't sound far off from like a Soundgarden record whether it was Bad Motor Finger or, or Super Unknown. Um, and there's even stuff like like the, the hidden track, which is the title track, Waiting for the Punchline, has like a Rage Against the Machine vibe to it.
But then he does stuff with his riffing that is just so beyond what you would normally hear in those players. And that, that to me was like the fun aspect of this was hearing all of his, uh, you know, just takes on, on different things. And I, I had read, I, I really never listened to an extreme album in full, um, hmm. prior to this. I only know the couple of singles. Yeah. And I've, I've heard them re- referred to as funk metal, is that is that fair? They were, yeah. I, I don't know if I would call it funk metal, but they definitely had a funky element, and they had well, a, they had a song on the second album called "Get the Funk Out." <laughs> is so. that like Tesla's talk about it in the in the in the in the pun department? As much as that would classify them as a you know <laughs> a, a band in the pot, that would well be the same case here. Let me let me see if I'm making a fair comparison. So what I hear like in Betancourt's playing and in this band is similar to what I hear in like Living Color in that mm. I hear a rhythm section that has an appreciation for more than just rock. Like you can tell that they're skilled and they're doing really interesting rhythmic things. Um, and, and Betancourt's able to play off of that. In the same way that, like, when we did the Living Color album Stain, like, that's a heavy record, and it's a dark record, but there's still, like, their take on, uh, you know, their their interpretation of funk in the in the sense of, like, a heavy band. Um, and so this, this kind of compares in some ways to that record, where even there's even some, you know, social commentary and... And some and some pretty heavy lyrics. I know there was a, a line about this is the albums being too mature or people not liking the more mature lyrics. What if, if if you name a a song "Get the Funk Out"? I'm gonna assume there's some funk. So there's got to be there's got to be some funk. Yeah, they always had like a funk element to them. I, I don't. I wouldn't say they would ever went as far as like Red Hot Chili Peppers or something like that. No, no. They become like think, stuck yeah. in that genre, but they definitely had that. Um, that feel from time to time and that approach to his guitar playing at times. Yeah. So in terms of what worked um, musically, this record, excuse me, musically, this record is, is right on point in terms of it sounds really cool. The guitar riffs sound really interesting. And I, I could pick out like I knew the riffs before I knew what the, the hooks were in the songs. I was like, oh, that riff is this. I can, okay, I remember that. Which is hard to do because, you know, there's so many songs in the 90s which are just a, a, a bar chord, four, you know, four chords of a bar chord progression. Yeah. And they're, there's not much to them. So it was nice to hear this uh, more advanced take on on hard rock and, and a little bit of alternative rock. Yeah. So, so in revisiting this, since this is the only record that you own, what is, uh, what works best for you? I love the constraint. I think you touched on it to, in one way with the, just the sound of the record. Um, it's very much a performance sounding record, like guys in a room playing this stuff live on their previous albums. They are, they're, they're heavy on production, you know, three sides, you know, it's orchestral at times. Mm-hmm. So to just hear them be stripped down truly and be this performance oriented 
you know, just trying to capture great guitar playing, try to capture great drum tracks, just get great vocal performances. Just, I think in that format, um, this band works really well because you've got four incredibly talented people um, and you're just hearing them, you know, gel and play off each other. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, that this album has any, because of the time it came out and the circumstances around it in the music industry, which we touched on, you know, I think it's interesting for a band like this, even that Molly Crew Records, many of the records we've talked about, maybe we're reviewing the future from bands that were popular in the, in the late eighties, mid eighties, you know, I don't, I don't know that this isn't their sound, you know, I don't know that the, the earlier stuff wasn't them trying to fit, you know, some mm-hmm. what else was going on, you know what I mean? Like, cause this to me sounds very authentic and very real and what they were playing at the time. And like, yeah, it, you know, there's some contemporary things in there, but it's also very just classical rock oriented, like the effects he's using, you know, phalangers and choruses and, you know, there's a, some octave effects on here and some chorusing and things that are kind of interesting, but they're very like seventies rock sounding, not Mm -hmm. eighties rock sounding or even nineties. Like he doesn't use like a, a super like a gainy guitar sound. You know, in a lot of cases, this is sounds like a, a Strat through Marshall kind of thing, you know, and and it's at times even clean sounding. So right. There's not a, a ton there that I hear that I think, Oh, this sounds like a nineties from a production standpoint, 90s record just sounds like a rock record. Um, I love, going back to the constraint, I love the, you know, he's using the Ted Templeman Van, classic Van Halen production techniques here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got uh, one guitar, a lot of cases, that has a reverb, and the reverb is hard pan left, and the guitar is hard pan right. And then they'll pretty much play the majority of the song that way. And then he'll overdub either solo or maybe in a chorus, he'll bring a second guitar in, but they really stick to that format, which to me creates all these opportunities for the vocal and the guitar to do some really cool things. You know, um, there's no God, you know, I think that guitar line in the verse in the vocal part in the verse are just brilliant. Like that, that doesn't sound like anybody to me that is a super cool idea. things like evil angelus where you know the chorus of the song is not chords 
which is interesting. It's like a guitar lick and a vocal part that like mimic each other. So you get all these like really cool interplays between the guitar performance and the vocal performance um, because they're so dedicated to, I think this like constrained format, like we're just going to be a lot, we're going to sound like a live band and we're going to like play our asses off to make sure that this sounds like full and complete and interesting and not use production tricks to, to make mm -hmm. the record sound big, which just pushes people. I just, and I can hear that come through in the record of like them just really working through these parts to make sure that like, you know, either the vocals and the guitar are doing something interesting or they're playing off of the melodies or they're countering each other or drum wise, you know, I think this from a drum standpoint is the best extreme record because I mean, Paul Gary could be a little simple and this to me has just enough extra flourishes, you know, little cowbells or they use the China symbol on this record in a way that is probably better than I've ever heard anybody use a China symbol, which mm -hmm. except for maybe playing the Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah. But you know, very rarely do you hear a China symbol. You're like, oh, I'm glad they used that. But this right. record has a couple spots. Um, like, uh, what is it? No Respect, where it's, you know, it is the chorus. Um, you know, the super aggressive vocal um, that's kind of snarly and like really pushing a lot of air. And you've got this, you know, this China symbol just kind of like bashing. And it just creates this really energetic, high intensity chorus that, right. you know, those little things, um, these little fills, little, you know, adding in little hits here and there, like fill in all these spaces that could have, that can make this, if they didn't do, can make the record sound very thin um, when you're trying to be this constrained. And mm -hmm. I don't think this record really ever sounds thin. So I just, I love that. This is not, um, I think from a song standpoint, probably not their best record. I think they tended to be, you know, a more song oriented band on the first couple records, particularly the first two, um, obviously with the big hit on the big hits on the second record. This to me sounds like them being more of a, um, an album band and being more about performance and instruments and maybe even jamming a little mm -hmm. um, being, not being so confined to like, we got to write a three minute pop song. It doesn't sound like on this right. record, they were super concerned with doing that. So yeah, I mean that that's, it's, it's performance to me uh, on this. And I think I love the sounds and I just love to hear people, you know, with just a good setup and a good um, production really work out some really interesting music um, and get it on tape. And that's to me what this record's always sounded like. I think your observation about 
maybe this is what the true sound of the band is probably probably fairly accurate i mean this is a band that grew up in the boston area with aerosmith in the, yeah. you know in the 70s and 80s and i can hear them wanting to be more of a just a straight up rock band and and like you said sort of ditch the overproduction and the and the the more flamboyant aspects of yep. of what they were sort of grew into um it's interesting and and they also mentioned about this being you know it's it's an album that doesn't maybe have a huge single and it reminds me of like you know take a band like blue oyster cult where blue oyster has, has a bunch of huge singles but then i would go into a record store and i'll pick up a record and i'll be like i don't recognize a single song and then yeah. there's four more records like that and you realize well bands in the 70s got to make a record like every year and some yep. of them have no hit singles on them. They're just albums. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's a that's a pretty apt, I think, description for this record. Like you can really enjoy listening to a lot of aspects of this record. But yeah, there's not really a killer single. Um getting into maybe some of the stuff that didn't work, I think my biggest problem is with um is with the not necessarily the vocals, but the the hooks. Yeah, they're they're really weak. His yeah. his he falls into the trap of his hook is just him repeating something over and over again. You know the whole "there is no God" line that just felt kind of cliched and a little bit. I know it's I know it's edgy for them, but like that's not really edgy anymore in 1995. Um, and there were the, the uh, what was another one there where he he just sort of like drove some of the hooks and like naked was one that just, it kind of, I just, it kind of rubbed me off, like rubbed me the wrong way. I couldn't listen to it anymore. And there's some really like just cringy lyrics in like shadow boxing. Like the whole song is essentially, I thought it was supposed to be like an allegory. I'm like, this kind of just reads as a song about shadow boxing. <laughs> Naked is kind of the same way too. Like when yeah. you read the lyrics, you're like, oh, this is a metaphor for something else. And I'm like, mm, maybe not. It, it just, it reads very first drafty. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess that's where my problem lays because I know that Gary Sharon can be a really interesting lyricist and write cool melodies, but I did not get that. Uh, in in I got that in very small doses um, on this record, and that that's where it sort of because of the fact that this is a an hour long, you know, twelve song record with a lot of tracks that go five six minutes, um, and his and the, his lyrics not pulling the weight. The original is only eleven tracks, but there's a hidden track, right? Waiting oh, for the there? punchline is, it closes. Does it close with unconditionally? I don't know. I would have to. It does. I mean, the listing is, but I. But I then, don't, uh, waiting for the punchline is the hidden track. But if uh, you go to okay. Spotify, it's not a hidden track because they don't do that. Yeah, I don't know. I only at this point, I only know the version on uh, Spotify, Apple Music. So, gotcha. which has waiting for the punchline is the twelfth track. Right. Which I don't know why they would make that a hidden track. It's a really good song. Again, but it's six. It's over six minutes. <laughs> it was the '90s. I think you were contractually obligated to have a hidden track. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So basically my two issues with the record are I don't feel like the lyrics are uh, as finished as they could be. And I don't feel like, or I guess three issues. The, the lyrics are kind of weak. His melodies are are pretty weak and, and repetitive. And there's a little too much fat on some of these tracks. I could have used a little bit of trimming. I don't need this to be a 30-minute record, but maybe yeah. bring it down to like 50 minutes, you know, 48 minutes, something like that. Um, I and, I and Midnight Express, I really like that song, but that should have been the hidden track. Yeah, it, it it's it's like, oh, hey, we discovered open tuning in a in a, you know, Middle Eastern. Oh, uh, well, that's uh, um, Nuno had a he would always put an instrumental on every track, every album. Gotcha. So it was like he got one one track every album to, to do right, some Nuno. instrumental thing. So that's what that is. Here's he your... was part of the guitar god. Like right. if you did follow the band, like he was like. You know, there with Eddie and Ingve, and I mean, probably one of the top five at the time considered guitar players. So you had to have a instrumental on your. You album. have to have your eruption. Yeah. Yes. 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 Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that's fine, but don't make it four minutes. <laughs> or if oh you're gonna God. do it, you know what I mean? Like. Yep. Make it a minute and a half. Is there anything in revisiting this? I don't, when was the last time before this that you actually went back and listened to this record? I'm curious. Um, probably when um, the album came out in 2008. I probably, okay. maybe, I, I think since then I probably responded it one or two times. You know, this is a, one of those records I will go back and seek every couple of years and spend a, you know, a, a day or two with it um, to just see if it holds up. Is there stuff upon this revisitation that doesn't work for you? Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of there with you with the lyrics. I mean, I don't have high expectations for for lyrics with bands like the, these. I'm kind of interested in like how they, you know, are inspired by what's going on in the world and how that might change the way that they, what they're saying and how they're saying it. I mean, I think for me, lyrically, what's interesting in this album is you know, there's some reflection here on what's going on in the world, obviously with hip today and mm -hmm. cynical, which I think are, uh, you know, statements about, you know, music at the time. Uh, right. I also think it's interesting things like there is no God and event evangelist in that the Gary Tron is a, is a Christian. Um, and even though they don't typically write Christian songs, like he is a, you know, he played Jesus Christ Superstar. So like he's right. And I think he play, has played in a Christian band. So like that's part of who he is. So those songs are interesting to me because they're kind of a, a bit more of a, a, a cynical take at, you know, religion, mm -hmm. which, you know, is more meaningful coming from somebody who's, you know, that's important to them. Um, so, but I'm with you on, there's lines here and there, you know, naked is a song lyrically isn't, you know, amazing. Um, there's some lines I'm waiting for the punchline. There's some, there's some other lines here and there where you're like, eh. Um, I think the thing though, that it, it can be a little plotting to yeah. get into this like slow mid-tempo groove, which they do well, you know, it, it sounds good, but it, 
the album can get a little, especially towards the middle, kind of get a little dragging, you know, um, it needs a shot, especially with it. For me, I'm appreciating it as a performance record, like, and I want to hear like spectacular inspired guitar playing and, and singing. And it, it could use a song like in the middle. That's just a really fire, like just a blistering rock song. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of get into this. No respect has some energy to it, but there's this, this span in the middle of the record where it just gets a little slow and plotting yeah. sounding. And they, the end kind of soft, you know, the end was shadow boxing and unconditionally and unconditionally is kind of the power ballad on the record, I guess. Oh, it's a power ballad. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a weak ending to the record. Um, so, you know, there's some soft spots on it. Um, and I think you really have to be, I think you really have to be into like guitar playing and rock performance to probably appreciate this record. Um, Cause like I said earlier, I don't know that the songs are as strong as, you know, as some of their other right. material. Did you get a Chris Cornell vibe at times? Like there is no God. I thought in another universe, that could be a, a Soundgarden song. Hmm. Um, not really. I mean, I could only hear them. I didn't really hear. There were some down tuning riffs here and there. I, that's another thing I'll say for this record. Like, typically, I think for the you know the, that crew record, you can you could, even though I like it a lot, you you have um, the ability to bash that in that you know they they definitely like went down that drop D route mm-hmm. with the riffs and stuff. There's not a ton of that on here. There's some. There's definitely some. Um, so there's some riffs here and there that remind me of other people, but I, I didn't really, the only, the only band I heard was, um, I thought Evangelist, um, the, the verse part, the way that rhythm is that guitar rhythm sounded to me like a lot, like in a classic Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen guitar rhythm. Well, that drum that, beat's I, like I a Zeppelin hear. beat. Yeah. That like stomp. There were actually times that he reminded me uh, vocally of Dave Grohl, not the Dave Grohl of 1995, but what Dave Grohl would, mm. would become. Yeah. Um, like on tell me something I don't know. Uh, there might have been one, another track there somewhere, but I, I had it on, I was listening to it <laughs> in the, in the kitchen. Um, I was sitting at the, well, I was sitting at the kitchen table and I, ha- I had it on, um, my echo and Katie was listening to it too. And she made a comment about Chris Cornell. And then I said, does this sound like Dave Grohl to you? And she's like, yeah, this is like if Dave Grohl took vocal lessons, like he'd be able to, <laughs> cause it was like him yeah. at his like growly kind of, and then Gary Sharon would hit, you know, would, would like raise up and do something really, you know, vocal some vocal trickery and that the dave girl can't pull off yeah yeah um and this has got um some of the harmonies they're known for yeah um i mean more than words right that's probably the most recognizable but they had a very like signature um harmony style between nuno and him and they do some of that on this record you can tell they're definitely like doing less of it than they had in the past I, i like when they did it like on there is no god and they do that like 
there is mm-hmm. that's and i can tell it's you know some cool harmonizing going there uh, but yeah i would have liked to have heard more of that because that's clearly a something in their toolbox yeah it's definitely what set them apart when the first record came out was they were able to do those harmonies um and actually play <laughs> right yeah they were always known as even at that time as like legit they weren't just um a band signed on image they could actually play so th- I, we mentioned that this album came out in 1995 and the single was hip today yep which I, I i don't know that there's a better choice but i don't know that there's that that was even really that there's even really a good radio single for 1995 yep um I, they probably would have had to their best bet would have been to to go the ballad sing the route, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think that ballad's not as strong as more than words. So no, no. It's 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 a pretty bland ballad. It's not. But you know, for a band like this, I mean, you're writing what four and a half minute or longer songs. That um, you know, you're not exactly the hippest band in the world. The only way you're going to make it on the radio, I think, <laughs> right. is to be to be writing power ballads in 95. Well, that's why I wonder, like, you know, you mentioned, uh, there is no God and, and them being, or, or at least Gary Sharon being outwardly Christian. If that song is like four minutes instead of six minutes, I wonder if you, if you do a cool video, if, if you can get onto headbangers ball, with that song because it's a i mean such a good riff and it's got like like i said it's not far off from you know what it reminded me of actually was uh audio slave um yeah save yourself it had that kind of that's a good point that's a good point that that is a band that is an album that i now that you're saying it would be very comparable to this yeah so it's, I mean, this is just in a weird period. For the- it's the same kind of format. Like it's got the, it's got a rhythm section that has a, they're both technically great, but they also have a mix of like funk and metal yep. backgrounds and a really strong singer over top. Yep. That's a good point. I think your, your point about Sharon's um, melodies too is, is worth noting because I agree they're not, spectacular on this record you know, they, they do their best to, with the instrumentation and the harmonies and other things to like make a hook out of it mm-hmm. but this is what he brought to van halen you know what i mean I, I think that's one of the you know things about that van halen three record is like this is the same kind of vocal thing he brought to it the problem was like i don't think eddie was listening to what he was singing and thinking like oh how can i accent it you know, play off of this. It was like, here, Gary, Gary, here's the songs. <laughs> Write <laughs> Go something. Sing yeah. And you know what I mean? Like you can hear like when he's left to just do that on his own on that record, it's not particularly hooky or compelling, you know, no. even though he's a fantastic singer. Right. Yeah. He needs to be bouncing off of somebody directly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause yeah, it's, there's, there's some, space for improvement on this so let's talk about our overall ratings 
on this album were the album better ep decent single jay i'll let you go first in this part of the the show what do you what do you say i've got to be a word the album uh I, there's not a ton i would cut from this it's just um when i'm in the mood for this you know i enjoy the whole thing maybe midnight express because it's not really it's just a guitar acoustic guitar track with with a drum loop under it um i could live with that being cut off um maybe naked but i still think the the pre-chorus in that song is pretty cool so yeah, I'm all in for this. I, I just think it's a unique. We don't have a lot of records like this that are this well produced. Because mm-hmm. like, sometimes when you get into the '70s stuff, sonically, it's it can be a little touch and go. You know, it's not always great. You know, they don't don't sound like Van Halen one. Um, <laughs> no, Temple Woman didn't produce all the records in the '70s, unfortunately. So you've got some sonic issues with some of those records. Um, and then the '80s, you start to get into like horrible production that can kill records so in the 90s you know it was a sweet spot in that we had the technology there was a sort of an interest in being raw and real but you still had some bands um on all sides of you know either old or new that could really play their asses off you know so right it's a really nice and it's pre like bands recording remotely right so you we're not into the genre the space where we are now where we get new music, but a lot of it is, you know, tracks emailed around or shared on Dropbox that you just build albums that way. Um, this is, you know, this unique period of like t- technical sonic production, high budget, but still a lot of time spent in crafting and, and capturing performances. So I really appreciate it for that. And, and it's one of a few, um you know maybe records that we have or at least i have that i can go to and, and really nerd out in this way that's a valid point but i say ep uh, <laughs> sorry jay sorry richard um i'm gonna go with the first four songs which are there is no god cynical tell me something i don't know and hip today then i'm gonna skip naked Min express and leave me alone uh, I'm going to go with No Respect and Evil Angelist. Then I'm going to skip Shadow Boxing and Unconditionally and then add Waiting for the Punchline. Seven songs doesn't quite add up to an album. Um, if you, I maybe throw on Midnight Express as the uh, hidden track and maybe make it an eight song record. Because uh, I do think that's cool. But um, yeah, it's just too much on here that I, it was just a, some of the material was just, is not as good as the other stuff. Um, when it's really strong, it's strong. So it, it gets, it gets exposed when it's not quite up there, but it was an interesting listen. And I really enjoyed listening to Nuno Betancourt play because I had not really dug into that. I mean, really the only thing I knew by him was an acoustic guitar. So, well, and you can, if you listen to this record and you think about like, okay, if, if Rihanna wants to put together like a band that's mm-hmm. capable of, you know, playing her stuff, but also like bringing a live performance to it. You can listen to this and listen to him play and kind of get like why he would work in that format, you know, cause he can do so much stuff and like knows how to oh, yeah. accent a pop song, you know, um, and so. get paid an ass load of money. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm sure I'm sure that that does pretty well for his back. Although I'm sure he's doing fine with that uh, that rating credit on more than words. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. Let's let's see. Where is where are we at currently on 316 million spins on Spotify for more than words? 316 million. Wow. So that means he has made. Three hundred and sixteen dollars. Congratulations <laughs> to Nuno Betancourt. Uh, thank you to Richard Waterman for suggesting this record. It was a good one for us to revisit. And thanks to everybody who suggested records for this poll, as well as commented on this poll over at Patreon, which you can join us at Patreon at dmounion.com and digmeoutunion.com. For just as little as two bucks a month, you can either pay monthly or yearly, depending on what aggravates you less. It's also where you can go and read our box newsletter, which you can also have delivered to your email inbox every week. We keep our calendar of new releases, which came in very handy when we did our uh, albums of 2020. Yeah, because I was able to actually look back and see what was released. But also we review uh, new releases every week, a couple of albums every week, one minute reviews, audio and text. And we can get that in your inbox uh, every week, or you can you check it out. Did, at Patreon. Uh, just did the uh, Smashing Pumpkins new yep. record and uh, the new Stone Gossard project, Painted Shield. Yes. Two interesting records that, uh, you know, both have huge connections, obviously, to the 90s. And uh, what's interesting is that that Smashing Pumpkins record, they're already like moved on to the next record. <laughs> Billy Corgan cannot just like relax and enjoy. Yeah, what he's, doing. he's like, I'm doing Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness Part Two. <laughs> like, OK, cool, dude. You just put out a record. Why don't you talk about that <laughs> for five minutes? Well, I thought it was odd because the artwork from that record matches the tour they did a couple of years ago. Like right. The style. And they, they did an album that has a long title that I, but it's only like eight songs and it's 30 minutes. Yeah. And apparently they no longer refer to that as an album. They refer to it as a tour promo. Oh my God. I, I, I don't know what's going on in his mind. I'm sorry. That, that band makes it very hard to like them. Yes. They do everything possible. <laughs> they do every, yeah. Anything they can think of to make you angry at them. They seem to do. Uh, as well as uh, our box newsletter, which you can sign up for at digmeoutpodcast.com. You can also suggest an album there, which is what ends up in our polls that our Patreon folks vote on. And then uh, last but not least, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave some positive feedback for us and for the people at those uh, you know app- Apple Podcasts so that uh, they can discover our podcast. Um, we've only got a couple episodes left in 2020 literally just a pair of episodes and then this year is over year 10 is over jay we're on to 11 unbelievable when i say unbelievable i mean uh that we have shown up (laughs) 10 years in a row we even made it through a pandemic (laughs) nothing can stop us oh man there's gonna there's gonna be an asteroid that shows up on radar <laughs> and we're gonna be like ain't stopping us 
The dinosaurs are back. So what? Ain't stopping us. So what? We got a Sweetwater record to review. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who cares? We got some Calexico to check out. Next. <laughs> Aliens just landed. So what? <laughs> we'll talk about uh, surfing the alien by Joe Satriani yeah. in our 80s episode <laughs> next week. <laughs> All right. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. <laughs>